0: Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 11. Paul writes these words. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in... For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. We'll stop there for this morning. If you Google, when did Pentecostalism start, you'll most likely be pointed to a lady by the name of Agnes Osman, O-Z-M-A-N, who supposedly received the gift of tongues in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas. Now, for the record, many and most early Pentecostals believed that that gift of tongues was precisely what we see in Scripture. The ability to speak and or interpret unlearned foreign languages, such as you might be able to speak Chinese without studying it. And by the way, convinced of that, they sent missionaries into foreign countries believing that those missionaries would be able to share the gospel with residents of those foreign language speaking countries because they believed they had received the biblical gift of tongues and they fell flat on their face and they had to return home. In reality, that's one of the reasons that the idea of unknown tongues is is pushed so adamantly today because the biblical tongues was tried and failed by them. None of that is really my focus, though, this morning. The idea of higher life theology, that is, reaching a higher spiritual plane than other more common believers. Some call it the second blessing. It reaches back further than 1901. Really, even if you look back to the Keswick movement in the 1800s, it laid the foundation needed to spark the modern-day Pentecostal movement and even charismaticism. If you're interested in that, by the way, there is an outstanding book worth quite literally every moment of your time written by a man by the name of Andy Nacelli. The name of the book is No Quick Fix. It's subtitled Where Higher Life Theology Came From, What It Is, and Why It's Harmful. And it is is good. Very good. Go get it. Well, today, we are about 150 years removed from the Keswick movement. We're a little over a hundred years since Agnes Osmond supposedly received the gift of tongues. And charismaticism has quite literally made inroads into almost, if not every, congregation in the United States. Just for clarity's sake, Pentecostalism is is often thought about as, as the denomination, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal. While charismaticism reaches farther than denominational lines and encompassing any form of, I'll define it, continuationism. Continuationism. Continuationism is the belief that the early sign gifts that we see in the book of Acts in the early churches are still very active today. That's continuationism, sign gifts that Paul mentions right here in this passage that we just read. Now, listen to, me, listen to me closely. Here's the part that may shock you. But in our modern American Christian, air quotes Blake, Christian society, you probably should just assume that every church that you pass by has been affected, influenced by the charismatic movement. That includes this church here. Some of you more than others, but we've all been affected by it. I'm actually shocked almost on a daily basis at comments made by Christians. Pastors not accepted. Comments suggesting that God is speaking to them through all kinds of things in the world. Frogs, trees, voices, rain, weather, whatever. Everything except Scripture. Unless we can bend Scripture and make it fit what we learned outside of Scripture. Then the Bible's okay. Right. Well, what is the real issue? What is the real issue? Is it whether tongues are operable today? Is that the real issue? Is is it whether miraculous healings are operable? Is that foundationally the problem? Is the actual problem the belief that God is speaking through dreams or visions or an audible voice or a still small voice in my gut, subjective impressions and things like that? Is that the issue, the actual issue? No, that's a symptom. That's just a symptom of the issue. The real issue undergirding the widespread charismatic influence in churches today is precisely the same thing that was going on in the Corinthian church. Men were confused about the office of an apostle. That's where the the problem is. Let us recall that these false teachers in Corinth were claiming to be apostles. Look at chapter 10, verse 12. Paul writes this. What I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Did you catch it? These intruders in the church at Corinth were working to were claiming to work on the same terms as the Apostle Paul. Paul's opponents were claiming to have apostle, you know, apostles' authority. That's the issue that was going on in Corinth, and it is at the heart of any form of continuationism today. Apostolic authority was given to 14 men Judas was a traitor and died. That leaves 13 saved individuals with, uh, or 14 men including Matthias and then Paul and then Judas if you want to in- include him there. But what is Paul's assessment of these men? Notice what he says in chapter 10 verse 13. Such men are false apostles. They claimed to be apostles, but they weren't. They were false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Look clear enough. Any claim, literally any apostolic claim ever, if a person is not an apostle, is a false claim. We don't take those claims seriously enough in our day. I dare say we don't even catch all of them. This is is serious stuff. Our Christian generation, quite simply, is not very discerning, despite the fact that we have more access to Scripture than any generation that has ever walked on the planet. Just behind this primary issue of misunderstanding the office of an apostle is confusion around the canon of Scripture. This, Genesis through Revelation. Not the canon that you shoot balls out of. right? This, the canon of Scripture. The canon is closed and when I say that the canon is closed, I mean that the Bible is a completed book. There are no more books coming. Nothing extra is being given today. And if we just understand that the office of an apostle has ceased, accepting that the New Testament is complete is just natural. I hope we can make that point as we work through that. And I'm not going to give a lengthy rehash. I've already given you this bit of introductory work. Let me remind you that we are in a section of 2 Corinthians that is often referred to as the fool's speech. Paul has taken this boastful posture, though he hated boasting, but he did this in order to defend himself himself against the false teachers. And Paul has boasted in everything but his own accomplishments. He's boasted in hardships, he's boasted in, in hunger and sicknesses, he's boasted in persecution, he's boasted in everything but his own accomplishment, which would have been the opposite of the false teachers that had come into Carth. And today, these three verses complete that fool's speech for us. The title of my message this morning is, The Signs of an Apostle. And in this text, this greatly, greatly important text, Paul explains what separates an apostle from all other believers, which, if we understand it, impacts our approach to knowing the will of God in our lives. Paul begins here, he says, I have been a fool. All this boasting that we've looked about in the past several sermons... And Paul sums it up, screaming the words almost, I have been a fool. Remember back in chapter uh, 11, verse 17, he said that this self-commendation, this bragging, this boasting, was not as the Lord would say. Paul was not a boaster at heart. right? This doesn't reveal Paul's... Heart for missions. He didn't go out boasting in himself and his tribe. Paul went out to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But because some in the church at Corinth were willing to entertain boastful false teachers, Paul had to employ their tactic of boasting in order to beat them at their own game, which he does. Which he does, especially considering that, that trip to heaven that we looked at last week. None of them have had anything like that experience. Nevertheless, he makes crystal clear here that he detests this. He doesn't like bragging on the things that God has even accomplished through him. He doesn't mind bragging on God, but he doesn't want to brag on Paul. And so he says, I have been a fool, but not without incriminating them. You forced me to it, he says. He only employed this posture of boasting because he felt he had no other choice. But through this fool's speech, all through it, he made sure over and over again that every reader understood that he opposed boasting. He hated it and so did the Lord. What should the have Christians been doing? I mean, what should the Corinthian Christians been doing? They should have been commending Paul. Colin Cruz writes this, quote, People do not need to indulge in the unpleasant act of self-commendation when their friends... Or those, whom they have, those to whom they have ministered take positive action to defend their integrity. End quote. Amen. And that is precisely what had not happened at Corinth. They had not defended Paul. This man, this, this true apostle of Jesus Christ had come into Corinth preaching the gospel through which they were saved. He had essentially pastored them for 18 months. Plenty of time for them to see what Paul's goal was, to learn of his integrity. What did they learn? Paul was a man of great integrity. And yet, when the false teachers strolled into town, they absolutely did not come to Paul's defense. When his authority was questioned, they did not come to Paul's defense. Listen, we need to defend one another when false charges are tossed our way, unlike what the Corinthian saints did. Notice, though, while Paul was there, he did more than just prove his integrity. Through Paul, God had affirmed Paul's office in the church. He was an apostle. Notice, Verse 11, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. Me and Paul would have gotten along. He, he loves to employ sarcasm. And that's what, the, that's what this is. These super apostles. That's just dripping with sarcasm. Paul's very clear earlier in chapter 11 verse 13 how he feels about these guys. They were false apostles. They weren't super apostles. This is probably their claim to being superior to Paul. That's probably what led him here to sarcastically refer to them as super apostles quite literally, everything Paul had done from, from preaching the true gospel of justification by faith alone to instructing the saints, to exercising various sign gifts, everything was superior to these false teachers. Everything. It wasn't even up for debate. And yet, Paul knew everything that was accomplished through his ministry was not actually his work. It was actually the work of God. And that's why he adds at the end here, even though I am nothing. Right? I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Well, if Paul, a true apostle, chosen by Jesus himself, commissioned to go into the world of the Gentiles and preach the gospel, if he is nothing... What is he implying that these super apostles are? Well, less than nothing. That's clear. Then Paul reminds them of his ministry there. Verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. We're going to camp out here for a little bit. The book of Acts does not record any of Paul's miracles at Corinth. Nevertheless, it's clear that he performed many from these words. Now Paul, being a true apostle, quite obviously distinguishes himself from the false apostle. The fact that he calls himself a true apostle means that the opponents... In Corinth, the false teachers, the intruders that had come in and bewitched the church, they were false apostles. Now understand what Paul is saying. There were sign gifts associated with the office of apostle. Abilities that other believers simply did not possess. These sign gifts are designated here as as signs and wonders and mighty works. Maybe Paul is just using these words you know, synonymously to, to build emphasis, or possibly there's a difference. Some have suggested that signs refers to, to, a, to an act, a miracle, that authenticated Paul and his apostleship. Wonders would be something that just evoked awe, like when Jesus raised Lazarus and the people were amazed. Mighty works may refer to something God clearly does through human means, something that's supernatural, we might say. It doesn't matter ever how you take those terms. Paul is saying that all of these signs and wonders and mighty works were the signs of a true apostle. That's his point. Now this would would obviously then exclude non-apostles. That is Paul's precise point. And this is the pattern that we see in the early church. Look, Acts 2.43, listen to the clarity of Dr. Luke. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It's clear. Acts 5.12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. That's pretty straightforward. Now just transparency, you do see a couple of other men performing miracle signs in the book of Acts. But these men were very closely associated with and working alongside the apostles. It's best to think of those men as merely an extension of the, uh, the office of an apostle. Look with me real quickly to Hebrews chapter 2. Let me show you something. We'll just begin reading with verse 1, but 3 and 4 is what I want to look at precisely. while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So so the gospel was declared at first by Jesus, right? Secondly, it was attested to the writer of Hebrews and his generation by those who heard. This is a reference to the office of apostle. Remember, it was the apostles specifically who were chosen to be eyewitnesses of Jesus and His ministry, His works, His teachings. This is why when a replacement was sought for Judas, do you remember what Peter said? One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that He was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. They had to know everything that Jesus said. They had to hear all of those sermons. They had to hear the teaching that went on behind doors. And what accompanied the apostolic preaching, according to the writer of Hebrews here, signs and wonders and various miracles. Look, the purpose of those miracles was to affirm the apostolic message of Jesus. This next generation of believers here in Hebrews did not possess miracle-working power, and they did not even seem to expect to. Of this passage in Hebrews, Tom Pennington writes this, quote, So, during the time of inspired New Testament history, even before the scripture was complete, the use of the miraculous gifts had already begun to decline. The miracles that confirmed the apostles and their message had begun to die now. That's the reality of the New Testament historical record. End quote. Amen. That is precisely what we see. Miracles were early when the Bible was just beginning to be written through the apostolic preaching. But they did not expect to have those miracles as time went on. Even the second generation of believers did not possess these things. By the way, this means Paul did not write the book of Hebrews. If you have that in your bubble, I hope I didn't burst it, but Paul was... Absolutely one of those first-generation witnesses that he's talking about here. Listen, it it is these very signs that we read about in Hebrews 2 that Paul worked while among the Corinthian church, the signs of an apostle. So the idea behind the designation apostle is that he is an official ambassador, sent forth, by the authority of another, in this case, Jesus. He is, the, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Think of the way that we use a, a power of attorney today where you bestow authority on another person to do financial transactions for you. Well, that's similar to the word apostle. And look, though the, the Greek word apostolos is occasionally used to talk about messengers from other things, like messengers of the churches as I said earlier, there were 14 men designated as apostles of Jesus. The original 12 including Judas, Matthias who replaced Judas after he was a traitor, and Paul. That is it. No one else is called an apostle of Jesus Christ. And according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, the apostles are the foundation of the church. Now again, Judas was a traitor. He's not part of that foundation. Judas was not a saved man. He was a devil from the beginning. Nevertheless, he was an apostle. But Listen, if the apostles are the foundation of the church, how many times do you lay a foundation? Once. You don't continue laying foundations in subsequent generations. That just seems so obvious. And so as the apostles died we never read of replacing them. I mean, we read of replacing Judas, but that was an entirely different circumstance. But after that, literally, no apostle was ever replaced because that office has ceased. Well, what does it mean when Paul in Ephesians 2 says that the apostles were the foundation of the church? Which, you know, if you look around the room today, there are, we don't have any apostles here. How, how are they our foundation? through the writing of the New Testament. Listen, in the upper room, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the night of His arrest, John 14, He told the twelve, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Later on, He goes on to tell them, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. By the way, if you see the Holy Spirit being abused in our world and the Holy Spirit becomes the focus, that is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to bear witness of Jesus, not to bear witness of Himself. But he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It's the apostles he's talking to there. That's, this is their business. This is why they were chosen to be with Jesus day after day after day. This is why the replacement for Judas must have accompanied them during all the time that Jesus went in and out among them. Initially, this began as just oral witness. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he he preached. But ultimately, the oral witness of the apostles gave way to written, God-breathed Scripture that we call the New Testament. And so like the working of miracles, the New Testament Was written by apostles and those very closely related to them, like Luke, who was Paul's traveling companion. Look with me to Matthew chapter 28. Show you something there. Verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples, just Judas is dead. There were twelve. Now there's eleven. That's for the public school kids. Anyway, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I do not have time to adequately preach the Great Commission this morning. I have done so in the past. There are sermons recorded. Feel free and go, go listen to those. But notice verse 16. It It is the eleven. Disciples, the apostles that went to Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had directed them to go. He appeared to 500 at one time. He did not tell those 500 to go. He told these men to go here. And He went. It's been suggested that these men merely represented the church. Now I don't want to give the impression that this has not been passed on to us today. It certainly has, but that's not the point that Matthew is making here. These men were personally chosen by Jesus to witness of His life and ministry, His death and resurrection. And here He is about to dispatch them to preach that message that He told them about in the upper room to the nations. Matthew is very clear as to who was present, the eleven. And it is to them that Jesus speaks. And notice the last line, verse 20 teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Listen, it was the apostles who received all of Jesus' teaching. And it's the apostles specifically that he commissioned to share all of those things publicly and abroad that he had taught them privately behind doors. Now they were to voice abroad openly and publicly. Maybe Let me put it this way. Maybe this will get your cog in your head turning. Cogs, I should say. Well, some of you may just have a cog. Anyway, though these men, through these men, the apostles, we have received what Paul refers to as the law of Christ. I don't have time to go into that, but you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6. Now listen, before somebody begins to accuse me of discounting the local church by saying that he was talking to the apostles here, let me, with as much zeal as I can possibly muster up, squash such a false charge before it ever gets started. I'm very much pro-local church. Most people who talk to me for a few moments would describe me as passionately local church. And listen, the book of Acts spells out precisely how this worked, right? The gospel was preached. Believing men and women were baptized. They assembled together corporately for worship, for instruction, for discipleship as churches. You can't get away from that. If you read the book of Acts, that's what you find over and over and over. But what were those churches taught? Acts 2.42 is clear as crystal. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching that's significant that's significant we are still doing the very same thing today as we open up second corinthians and we work through this letter written by the apostle paul we are devoting ourselves to the apostles teaching look there will be 12 names on the foundation of the new jerusalem everybody doesn't get a trophy there. Revelation 21 says the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. All of those men, those authorized chosen men sent by Jesus, they have long since died. And what that means for us this morning then is that the canon of Scripture is closed. It is closed. No more is being revealed. The Bible is complete. God has told us everything that He wants us to know. The information is sitting in your lap in a book we call the Bible. Nobody's getting dreams and visions today. Nobody is being spoken to through their subconscious or their conscious mind. That is not going on. Preachers are not being given fresh words to speak to their congregations. In fact, we have very old words to speak to you. Words that have stood the test of time. The Scripture that was written some 2,000 plus years ago and it is still very relevant to us this morning. Paul told Timothy, preach the Word. That is the same instruction that we have today as we stand before you. So we the elder team, your, your teachers, whoever. We are to teach what Jesus taught the apostles and then they relayed by inspiration to us in the Bible. This, this is big. This is what the saints of Corinth didn't get. And I dare say a major portion of our generation has missed it too. Jesus did not write the New Testament with his own hand, with, with, with pen and ink. He wrote it, but he wrote it through men. Men we call the apostles and those closely related to them. I thought John MacArthur had a really good quote. Here's what he writes, quote, Apostles, signs, wonders, and miracles are not normative for the church today. What is normative is the Bible, which is complete, stands forever, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Amen, amen, amen to that. I realize that was a lot on the apostles. But confusion about the role of the apostles was the problem in Corinth. And guys, it's what is wrong so often today. We have missed what an apostle Is. These intruders in Corinth were making apostolic claims, and such a claim is a serious, serious problem. And just for transparency, such a claim is no less problematic today, and it is just as false. Just as false. Now, Paul says here in our text that he worked these miracles with. The utmost patience. Probably what Paul is is saying is that through all of these these trials of life, these these hardships that he has described, we looked at those in the previous sections, through those he continued to press on doing apostolic work, including God working miracles through him. And the church in Corinth then was blessed. Blessed because they had 18 months to witness apostolic ministry, which we haven't. And many churches in their day did not. But they did not even realize how blessed they were. In fact, they had begun to consider maybe they should listen to the false teachers that were coming in and claiming to have more authority than Paul and more knowledge. Notice verse 13. Paul says, For in what way were you less favored than the rest of the Churches, Or in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. So obviously there was some sense in which these saints in Corinth felt cheated by Paul, at least in some way. And I'm certain that the false teachers had convinced them that Paul had cheated them. But Paul calls their bluff. And he says, Name me how you were less favored. Tell me how. They couldn't have answered that. Paul had stayed with them 18 months, far longer than he stayed in most places. By that standard, the amount of time he stayed, they were actually far more favored than most other churches in the New Testament. And then he has this one more sarcastic jab. Here's here's one way they were less favored by the rest of the churches. Paul did not burden them. What he he means to say is he he didn't take their money. Remember what he wrote back in chapter 11, verse 8? How did Paul do ministry in Corinth? He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. That is to say, other churches financially supported Paul so he could do ministry work in Corinth. He didn't take anything from them. And he says, well, maybe that's how I wronged you. Maybe maybe that's how I wronged you. I didn't take money. Forgive me this wrong. He's obviously using sarcasm. Forgive me of not robbing you blind, Paul says. That's what he means. The fact that Paul took no money from them while the false teachers had their hand in their back pocket all the time was a credit to Paul's integrity against the intruders. (coughs) And yet, somehow, the saints in Corinth just just missed it. Well, what are we to glean from a passage where Paul has this, this heavy stress on an apostle versus... Everybody else, quite literally. Well, the fact here that Paul refers to the signs of a true apostle makes it quite certain that these miracles are not normative for the majority of church history, including today. And yet, right now, in the luxury of your own pew, you could pull up on your phone... The website for the International Coalition of Apostolic Leaders, and for the minimal fee of $450, if you believe it's possible that you may be an apostle, you can join up with a bunch of other apostles. And if if you're blessed enough that your spouse is an apostle too, they'll give you a discount $650. It's not only them, though. The New Apostolic Reformation is a movement today that is really making waves. And it is a group of self proclaimed apostles. Hesitantly, I'll say the fasted, fastest growing church in our town is connected to this group the New Apostolic Reformation. Guys, listen, the problem that faced the early churches, the issue in this text this morning, who is and who isn't an apostle, is still a problem today in 2024. Listen, the claim to be an apostle, if you are not one, puts you shoulder to shoulder with the false teachers in Corinth. I don't know how else to take it. In fact, I think we can safely say, by the authority of the Word of God, if you claim to be an apostle when you are not one, you are a false apostle. I fear that as a Christian generation, we have misunderstood the office of an apostle to a great degree. Really, making apostles to be Little more than glorified pastors, maybe the seniorest of senior pastors, but just sort of glorified pastors nonetheless. But by doing so, we have opened the door wide to dangerous doctrines, heresies, I should say. Listen, and I hope I have been clear about this, but I'll say it again. Fourteen men in all of world history have been apostles. One of these men, Judas, was a traitor. No one else has ever or will ever hold that office. Now listen, you may think apostolic claims are only being made by those who have it on their church sign. But you'd be mistaken if you think that. Remember what I hypothesized earlier in the introduction. We should just assume that every church that we come in contact with has been influenced by the charismatic movement in one way or another, and we are not exempt, to some degree at least, not from top to bottom. Apostolic claims, not merely men claiming to be apostles, those exist, yes, but apostolic claims are made weekly, in pulpits everywhere, across the denominational spectrum. You can't just trace it down. When a man gets into a pulpit and, and suggests that God tailor-made him a message, even some type, of, some type of inner prompting or gut feeling, he just couldn't get it off his mind or whatever, listen, that is an apostolic claim. I am not saying it was intended to be one, but that is irrelevant. It still is. Who did Jesus speak through authoritatively? The apostles. Who was it that passed along everything that Jesus taught? The apostles. Guys, listen. When men claim to get information apart from Scripture, it is the claim of a revelatory gift. In other words, God is speaking apart from the Bible. And it is dangerous because it is an apost- uh, an apost- the claim to be an apostle. God gave me this message, which is stated again and again and again and again in pulpits around the world, needs to be questioned by somebody because there's not a shred of the New Testament that claims God was going to work that way. Nothing. Preach the Word is the duty of pastors. Now, if a man intends by that, God gave me a message, if he intends to say that God blessed his study of Scripture... You know, He was studying the Bible. God opened the text up to him. He would be a whole lot better off saying that. Sometimes it's just being loose with words. But in this world of mass confusion about how God speaks, we need to speak with clarity because words matter. In my experience, though, that's generally not what men mean when they say God gave me this message. They mean they were out fishing one day and God dropped a three-pointed sermon, alliterated and everything, right up in their brain. And that's just false. Let me share this quote with you that I read. I save stuff like this for sermons like this. I couldn't believe when I read this, actually. This is is actually a word-for-word quote from a Baptist preacher's blog. Not... Assembly of God or whatever. No, no, I'm going to get in our backyard. Here's what it says. Speaking of the seven letters to the seven churches in in Revelation, right? In Revelation 2 and 3, here's what he writes. Quote, "'Wonder what our church letter looks like. Certainly the Son of God is still walking among His candlesticks and still has charge of the seven stars, the pastors of the churches.' he is still sending sermons and messages to them. I know that because he gives me two every Sunday and one for Wednesday here at he names, you know, the church that he's at. Listen, if we take those words in the best light possible, they are extremely irresponsible. Extremely. But if we take them as they read, they're blasphemous. If you didn't catch it, he essentially equated his three weekly sermons that God is sending him with Scripture. That's a a false claim. That is an apostolic claim. And it's dangerous because it means that the church is bound to follow Him. And by the way, if he really did get those sermons from the Lord Himself, we're bound to follow them because they're inspired. Well, I can assure you, after having listened to some of his preaching, he doesn't need to blame the Holy Spirit for his lack of preparation. Let me just put it that way. Listen, anyone with biblical knowledge should immediately balk at such a claim. It's just too obvious to be missed. It is an apostolic claim. It's not even hard to discern it. But most of the time, the claims aren't quite so in your face. We still need to listen closely. We must be aware when those type of claims are made. I'll close with this. First John 4, 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Look, this is our duty today. Not just for us, but for the sake of this next generation out here sitting. We need to be on guard. We need to let emotionalism go and return to this high view of Scripture that was relayed from Jesus through His chosen apostles to us today. So here's the positive side. Here's the positive side of the message. Of all of the negativity, let me sum it up in this positive. We possess in our hands a copy of the apostles' teaching. Men called and equipped... And commissioned by Jesus, as as the Lord breathed His Word through them onto paper, we possess a copy of their teaching today. We do not need apostles today. We do not need them because God has graciously preserved His Word in its entirety for us to preach from, teach from, study from. We have the apostles' Word here, now. So we don't need apostles. Extra-biblical insight, because we have this book, is then unnecessary because the Bible is sufficient for all that we need. Let us not take it for granted. Stand with me, if you will. Ben, will you dismiss us, please, sir?